0: You live alone? Uh, most dangerous Game ran in May, 69. So that would be about nine weeks before the first Zodiac, correct? Uh, yeah. Do you think he saw the film in our theater and was inspired? Are you sure there's nobody else in the house? Would you like to go upstairs and check? No. There and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan and I'm not.
1: I'm Mario Pazio. Oh, and this is episode 90. 90. Wow, we have uh, 11 episodes down now. I mean, well, we just Counting started episode this episode. Zero, yeah, well, we just know it's this episode,
0: done. So it's finished. It's
1: down. Yes. See you guys next week. We've never abandoned. Uh, we've never abandoned. Go an episode. see a movie. Drink a beer and we'll talk to you next week. Yes.
0: 22nd episode. That's how you do it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> They'll bring our average time per episode down to, like, two hours and five minutes. Some people
0: might say that that is a positive, Mario. I know many people would. You know, <laughs> those people are real jerks. <laughs> All right, so we're back on uh, the Pivotal Film Studios. It's hot. It's way hotter than it seems like it should be. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 cool outside, but... Uh, it's here, hot in here. Here in the Pivotal
1: Film Studios, we're, we're trying to make our electricity bill not be so high, so we... <laughs> Do not have the air conditioning on. Uh, orchestras won't pay for themselves.
0: Sons, bitches. Ghosts
1: require the substance, I guess.
0: Yeah. Um, to cool off, let's, uh, let's open a tasty beverage. Oh, I was going to drink a bit of this coffee I have in my hand. All right. Well, I'll, talk about this, I'll talk about this, this beer we got in front of us. It is um, our you it. counterweight beer oh. um, out of Hamden, Connecticut. Counterweight, get on the sponsorship trail, guys. I know. I know. We'll have to send them like a link. Like, look what we did for you. Uh,
1: Kent Falls did give us a, a like heart for the oh picture of
0: the Kent Falls yeah. beer. We can't drink digital heart. hearts, Kent Falls. Not yet. All right? So let's send us something real. Um it is the their workhorse. It is a Pilsner beer. Well really quickly,
1: this image here, and this will go up on our Instagram. Oh, Jesus. I'm such a whore for that thing. Uh is is a is a horse attacking a barrel that's on fire barrel is on fire yeah why is that barrel on fire? and what's going on with that horse? Is that horse, horse is working is it Is it working or is it like a sun god because it's got like those beams of light around it and maybe it's causing it to great like tur like catch
0: on fire So the horse through interacting with this barrel has accidentally lit it on fire because oh. the horse is the sun also that horse is mal-
1: malnourished. Look at those ribs yeah. Oh, this sad. horse looks like it's in trouble. We should probably drink this beer now. We should probably stop talking about
0: the canner. I don't know, Mario. Don't transfixed. Know. Trying to think of a metaphor for this horse. It's
1: a, it's a real James Gray sort of horse. Oh, wait. It's a work horse, so it's not a James Gray sort of horse. Off the hook this week, Lawrence Kasdan For So far. Dink. and Hmm. It's a pilsner. So it's drinkable, much as is what you want from a pilsner. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely something that that's crushable as they say, very it can be a very speedy sort of drink. I don't know.
0: It's it's got grassy lemon citric notes and I get that, but it's hitting me in the back of the throat. I get it, I get it makes it a little less crushable for me as it were. I get a lemon in the front
1: and then it's like that breadiness they give with the pilsner. And maybe finishes like with a tart the appleness. And maybe like a slight mm. spice. Sometimes. I get I definitely get like a tart apple.
0: Like a like a Granny Smith in the end. Do you get that or? No, it's not as bright as a Granny Smith. Seems more like a dull brightness. Like a dull. Like tartness. bright not as intelligent as a Granny Smith. Yeah, no, Granny Smiths are pretty smart, uh,
1: Granny Smith was third in the class behind Gala and Macintosh though.
0: You oh, son of a bitch. But be- before the pink lady. Yeah, Brayburn was pulling up the back. <laughs>
1: <laughs> really hope we It is the right time of year to talk about apples.
0: Yeah, we're, but gonna, we're not going to
1: talk about apples.
0: We're going to start drinking hard cider instead of beer. Yeah, I am done.
1: <laughs> I am out of here if we do that. Nothing I want more than on a work night to, to drink something with high sugar content and mm. wake up the next day with a thirty-two. Headache, yeah. yeah, it's um, getting it's getting worse day by day. This is this is good though. I do enjoy this good. a lot. I mean, not transcendent, not transcendent no. beer,
0: but it's it's, it's a Pilsner very good
1: ever transcendent.
0: I I honestly have not had a transcendent Pilsner network. No, I,
1: I don't think a Pilsner is ever meant to be transcendent. A Pilsner, to me, always harkens back to the days when people drank beer because they didn't want to die of dysentery.
0: <laughs> That's why we were drinking this
1: today. Oh, yeah. I mean, you heard the story uh, last week that they, they mentioned this about a bunch of puppies like gave 116 people like bacteria-resistant, or not bacteria, gave uh, penicillin-resistant uh like di- diarrhea,
0: I don't know. So I did no. not hear that. Yeah.
1: So so maybe we are preventing, we're preserving our own health Stupid puppies. through drinking this Pilsner. Well, Is... oh, maybe we should put put the maybe we should get this horse to light some puppies on fire.
0: <laughs> maybe that's what's in the barrel.
1: Yeah. Oh, Mandy, it. and it's Mandy from the movie we talked about last week, and a bunch of puppies and a couple starlings, of course. Yep, gotta
0: have some starlings. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Alright, welcome back My number 90 is David Fincher's 2007 film Zodiac Starring everyone and their mother Except apparently for George Clooney yeah. Who was going to play the Donald Logue character But he got beat out from an acting standpoint by Donald Logue I think that's how it I, went. I'm nodding in agreement Yeah, I think that's how it went I think Donald Logue would have made I don't know Donald Logue's one of those good unsung sort of actors I think there's a lot of unsung actors in this movie, which is one of the movies one of the reasons I think it makes it an interesting movie to kind of rewatch and go back to because it's um, it's a people a lot of people you get to see all the time. Um, we talked about James Lagrosse last week, and I said he's in one of those guys is' in everything. James Lagrosse from Support the Girls is in this is he really? Yeah, he's one of the cops um, from the seventies in the Vallejo county sheriff's Department okay with um man by Elias Cotillas um and then he's the police officer at the end of the movie that shows the guy um the picture
1: in the airport okay um
0: but it's just so you have a lot of those guys that kind of just step in to take these to take these you know strange um thankless roles um but they're all people you know really well um
1: you have John <clears throat> Carroll Lynch not being a sad husband this time no
0: he's something else <laughs> in this movie um my relationship to this movie is a lot like um, a relationship I have to a lot of Coen Brothers movies. I don't, I don't love every David Fincher movie. He is not my Paul Thomas Anderson or, or Darren Aronofsky. Where when they release movies, I'm, I'm all in. Um, I'm gonna go see it. I'm gonna probably have nice things to say about it, regardless we were talking of what about anybody else has to say. Mother before it came out for quite a while, so yeah. Um and like I think Noah is like a really awesome movie. It's got Still a lot of seen it. it's got a lot of missteps but it's it's just uh, you know it's a killer watch. He's doing a lot of, of really interesting stuff in Noah whether it works for you or not. Um so David Fincher not one of those people I didn't I thought The Social Network was not like an impressive movie. Um you know The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, oh, Gone garbage. Girl. But even like you know we had we had just talked off air about like Alien 3. Um which a lot of people think is like uh, you know one of the least good alien movies um but maybe people are kind of coming around to it after yeah. having you know
1: having s- rewatched it and then rewatched alien resurrection and realized a new kind of blew the gasket on that but no i said reset off air that It feels like when Fincher has a relation to a role or or, or to a film, he does put in the work. And when he doesn't or when he's doing it for something for a profit, he's doing the same sort of stylistic choices, but they come off as artificial and
0: like Michael Bayish almost in the sense of like, they feel like tropes. Right. So the stuff that he did in, you know, a lot of the, the going through the body stuff that he would do in like something like Fight Club or a lot of the computer generated stuff, um, with like tracking shots of cameras through duct systems and stuff like that um, has now become a thing that he will just do in a movie just to kind of like spice it up a little bit. Just to show an interesting thing. Um, (sighs) Zodiac is not one of those movies for me that I can point directly to a moment and say like, Oh, that was when I knew Or even a viewing. I mean, this is a movie that I've actually seen a lot of times. My wife commented when I said I needed to watch Zodiac for the thing. She's like, How many more times can you watch Zodiac? I've probably watched Zodiac way more times than I've seen some of the movies um, a little higher on my list. Um, I think one of the reasons being is that um, I like this cast a lot. I think it's a lot. I actually think Zodiac's a lot of fun when the Zodiac is not killing people.
1: Yeah, which is nice, because that ends after the first act, and the rest of it's just well, there's ensemble actually working four,
0: together. Well, there's four murders that they show, Yeah, um, and they're all really, I find them all really uncomfortable. Um, I think because it's so naturalistic. Um, you know, we had talked about... Well, that park,
1: uh, murders, the park murders is still, is like, bad. talked about as one of, like, the most unsettling graphic, and even though it's not intensely violent, it's still... No, noted as being. I actually so unsettled, and
0: I find them all vaguely unsettling. So, like the mother mm. in the car with the baby, I'm, you know, there's a baby thing, so that's going to get me every time. But even like the first murder, um, I don't know. There's a real, there's a, a real, um, there's a real visceral feeling created from um, the murder scenes. There's a lot, of... which I don't, which I, I've, which have never sat well with me. And there's a lot of distance to it. There's a lot of like it's very clinical.
1: Like the cab driver's death. Um, you know, Fincher kind of does that. That He even said, like, in the commentary, he does, like, this, like, perspective of God sort of thing, like this overhead shot. Oh, that's of, so like, it's something he would say. Yeah. Would <laughs> um, but, like, like, being able to do nothing. And, like, all this just... Those scenes very much feel like you can't... You're just stuck watching it. And I think
0: that's one of the... And I, the, the clinical thing is the detachment is, um, I think, one of the key things. And something I... <clears throat> would point to as well with that stuff, is that it's it's actually the times when you're least... when he seems least invested in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so the kind of degradation of these... the psyches of these characters that are involved with trying to solve the murder um, are shown really close up, and you get to see lots of different layers and how those layers are peeled back and what these characters look like underneath. But these killings are just, you know, this happens and this happens and this happens. And then... Um, I think as the movie goes on, you get the sense that this is never going to get solved. So, the later killings, so the people at the park and, um, you know, the. The cab driver? The cab, or the. No, the mother and the baby. Okay. Um, that whole scene, you get the, the sense that this is never going to get solved. And so, he's showing you these things. Um, there's a real sense of futility to these things, and it makes you. It makes me. Sad anyway. Um, juxtapose th- that stuff with all the, you know. Um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I think I think that kind of like works with the mania
1: and of of Gray Smith later on, and the fact that you know it, you yourself as the audience, and kind of like there's a lot of manipulation in this movie of the audience's emotions to kind of like be in line with Gray Smith's kind of mindset, uh-huh. and I think that kind of futility and you know. Total detachment from it plays a significant role in getting the audience in
0: the same mindset as well. It also, it also, the, all those scenes actually act, I find, act as a kind of um, <clears throat> a grand image of what was is actually at stake, and they kind of talk about this um, a little bit or a couple of times in the movie, in the sense that um, through the course of time that Zodiac has has killed people. Lots of other people have died. Um, there's actually a severe lack of stakes in anything that Zodiac is doing um, after a certain amount of time um, where his the context of, of that zodiac is operating in is now so broad that it doesn't it doesn't even really matter yeah um, so you you're juxtaposing that fact with what what Gray Smith believes, what Avery believed, played brilliantly by Robert Downey Jr.
1: And this and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang were kind of the movies that got him back
0: on track to get like that Iron Man role. So, which is unfortunate that this got him back on track to being <laughs> to being Iron Man, not for his bank account. But I guess no. so. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I don't think he's I don't think he's too worked up about it. Those two are the key figures that are dealing with the mystery of who the Zodiac is um, with their, with their emotions. They're not dealing with it clinically like, um Toski is, um, played by Mark Ruffalo, um, who is trying to use his his detective intellect to kind of put these, to put these pieces together. Um, Graysmith and, and Avery both seem to feel like they can will um, the Zodiac into revealing himself. Um, and that just through sheer force of effort, they, can, they will figure it out. Um, which eventually leads to them realizing that they can't do that. And then Avery, you know, gets emphysema and goes to live in a boat. Um, and Graysmith deteriorates, Graysmith's psyche deteriorates into to the point where at the end of the movie when he's, you know, got his apartment full of file boxes and cork boards with documents tack to it. Um, He just says that he doesn't know what anything is anymore. He doesn't know what's real, what's not real. Um, You know, Chloe Sevigny, who's playing his his second wife, um, says, you know, did you ever? And he doesn't really answer that question because maybe he didn't ever know it was real. Um, For me, I feel like David Fincher was really effective in conveying this kind of um you know it's not it's not impending doom and it's not dread it's kind of it's like a paralyzing frustration um it's really morose that you can't do anything about it's there's nothing anybody can do about any of this stuff but they just they just keep trying and I think one of, the geniuses of the, one of the genius aspects of the movie is that we as the viewers understand that they're never going to figure this out. I actually feel like you, you, you understand that maybe three quarters of the way through the movie that you're going to be like, oh, okay, this is not going to resolve ever. But it's still that last half hour is a really electric um, bit of acting and, um, and filmmaking. Um, and it just, you know, it's, it, it, it always draws me in. Um, I don't know. I've talked for a while. Sweaty. Oh, I want I want to hear some want to hear some marioisms. Um marioisms.
1: No, this this is a great movie. Uh it doesn't speak to me as much as I think it speaks to you. Um I think I just see it as a really well-made movie. Uh, as we talked about that park murder scene is is really uncomfortable and how naturalistic and but still detached it is. Um that famous, famous basement sequence, uh, you know, really draws up the paranoia. Uh-huh. Um, there's a lot of good articles just discussing the way that shot is framed and the way the actors are blocked in the sense of, you know, moving, like, um, when he goes to talk to him, like the, the, the Homer kind of moves in composite or like the way that they, they're hidden lights or the, the angles the uh-huh. holds of the shots. And, and so like all that kind of like workmanship is, I appreciate to me, the thing I, I really enjoy about this movie, though, is David Fincher grew up during his time in San Francisco, and a lot of this movie feels like a real love letter to San oh, Francisco, yeah. which I, I'm from, as we may have talked about before, Reno, which is only a couple hundred miles from San Francisco, um, and it feels really authentic to that area. Uh, during that opening shot, um, you know, that digitally created kind of San Francisco pull-in after the the first murders. Uh, the first murder and attack. Um, you know, it, it shows the construction of the Hyatt Regency, which is really important to that time period. Uh-huh. And the um, Ember uh Freeway, which collapsed during the 1989 hur- um, earthquake. Mm-hmm. And then later on, that kind of like composite shot to show the expansive time of the building of the Trans-America building. Yeah, yeah. And just a lot of this movie feels like a love letter to San Francisco. In the same way, it's interesting. To have that perspective, because knowing people who grew up in that time in San Francisco carried that sort of dread. Mm. Um, you know, David Pincher kind of talks in his commentary about how, you know, he, he had a squad car once following his school bus because they, they were doing that. Because had made that threat that he was going to, you know, shoot out a tire and kill a bunch of kids. Pick off kids as they came off the came school off bus. bus. Yeah. Um, and so it carries that really authentic dread that, you know, I, I had actually like had a biology teacher at this time, so it's kind of surprising this isn't a pivotal film of mine, who lived um, in the Tahoe region when the one murder that might have been associated with the Zodiac happened, mm-hmm. and also in San Francisco during that time. And he just, he mentioned this one time in biology class, just how much that dread carried over for that, mm. that year these murders were happening. Um and this does a really authentic job of capturing a moment in time in the city, but also kind of capturing that, that dread of the city during the first act, which kind of naturally carries itself to the obsession that, you know, Graysmith feels. And, and it does a really good job of keeping the audience locked in. Angus Wall, you know, great editor. He would go on the next two years after this. I think the next two years after this are... No, t- 2010 and 2011, he'd win back to back Oscars for Social Network and then Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. One of those is a bad movie. The other one, I, I really like Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. I think we'd probably disagree on that. But, um, it's just, it is what it is. Uh, it's really well edited, though. Oh, okay. Come on. <laughs> okay. Um, but I think that, that kind of like montage is showing expansive years, kind of like that four years in, or so years in, in like that one shot of like showing the historical. Mm-hmm. Um, events to kind of like speed it up and, and so you know a lot's happening well, there's, but you don't get that feeling with it like you as the audience are still in the immediacy of what's happened and there's that's a how Raismith feels there's a lot
0: of double uh, you know one of the things I love about Fincher is that kind of like how you intimated before that he is a he's a craftsman he's he's doing he's doing some work um, so I think a lot he's of he's a the, real workhorse he's a real workhorse oh Jesus Um come on counterly a lot of his stuff is doing double duty so while a lot of those computer generated images of skylines and um, the above you know the grid work of of the city that he shows um, is showing uh, you know the expanse of the city and the passage of time it's giving like some spatial like sure reason but it's also it's also creating a separation so there is a sense that, when, especially when like the, you get this sense really vividly when the Trans-America building's going up, um, and you get that long passage of time. but there's also uh, almost like a separation between like, um, a, referencing a little bit of the movie we're going to talk about later, what's happening up here and what's happening down on the streets, like on the, you know, the street level of things. Um, there's that great shot after the cab driver um, is killed. When uh, Mark Ruffalo and um, Anthony Edwards are going to, um, you know, they're, they're at the crime scene, they're talking shit out, um, they talk to the cop, they say that the kids saw um, the killer leave in a certain direction, and um, Dave Tosky walks out into the direction, and he kind of just stands looking out, like, at the skyline, and it's very obviously computer-generated. Um, but you get a lot of the sky and it's got this golden hue and there's some lights in the background, but then, um, but then he turns around and he comes back to, he comes, it's almost like he comes back to street level. Like, I'm not going to figure this out, out here. I'm not going to use kind of in like the way that Graysmith tried to, to kind of like existentially reason like why this has happened and who did this. He's going to use, um, the facts of the case, the evidence, he's going to get down on the ground and and really dig into how, you know, who did this murder? How did it happen? Why did it happen? There's just this, and which symbolizes the like the juxtaposition of how he's dealing with it and how Graysmith is dealing with it. And it really isn't until the end of the movie that they kind of meet where Graysmith and him are kind of doing the same, are, are, are kind of doing the same work. Um, and that's, but these are these are motifs and, and and images that are carried out through the entire movie. Well, oh, yeah, and you I know, think, and, they, and that, that resonate throughout the whole movie.
1: And I think the thing that's smart about Fincher is you know you you get a really solid cinematographer and like Harris Savides doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, he would die a few years after it's like fifty five. Uh, you know he had done Game before with Fincher, which is you know a really well shot movie. Fincher's still trying to find his voice.
0: That's very premeditated,
1: but. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, like, Sabides was very much like an artist kind of thing. Like, he was very much tried to be visual in the sense of, of of copying art he liked. So he had, like, a lot of Caravaggio and George de la Tour. He had blah, blah blah that kind of, like, deep kind of browns. Oh, thing. yeah. Um, and it's there when, like, people are kind of, like, waxing poetic in their head. But then, like, Fincher brings it in, you know, to kind of, like, make it very workman. And, like, the shots become very neutral and, and and not maybe clinical in a sense but very they feel digital in the sense that they feel framed and which like, almost which works which though. works because it, it it helps you be in the mindset of the character that when they're they're kind of like looking off or oh, when some of these murder sequence the murder sequences are happening and they're getting like the you know finchers having various actors come in to play the zodiac killer based on different eyewitnesses mm-hmm. you know they have this murkiness to them and this like the, these Browns that become like purples and whatnot. So like this very artistic nature to this like kind of detachment. But then when people are trying to like get their nose down, mm-hmm. it becomes that that nice kind of stainless steel sort
0: of uh fincher well, style. Yeah, and you get um you get it's another it's another horror movie. It's another movie that should kind of take place all in the dark that gets take that takes place um a lot in the daylight. And, a, and in a lot of fluorescent lit rooms. Yeah. Um, and because kind of how you were saying, where this, this sense of, of, of dread kind of followed people around, like it, it wasn't a thing that you were just scared of at night. It was a thing you were kind of scared of all the time. And you never knew where this stuff was going to drop.
1: So it was something that was both inside of your head, but also in front of you. Mm. You know, it was, it was a very tangential sort of experience and I think this is captured perfectly in this film
0: yeah I think so um, never ha- before in a movie has a, a letter held so much impact for so many people and kind it carries of that, it carries that
1: opening you know that opening credit sequence is, is, that, is that letter
0: well that's I mean so that's uh, it's one of those letters and it's in the context when you're watching it you're just like oh this is this mailroom scene is just going on endlessly but he wanted
1: it to be longer Oh really? Yeah, he just he realized it was going to take like eight weeks to do it. He wanted to go all the way up to like a single shot.
0: Oh, that's stupid. Yeah, um, it would have been done. <laughs> um, there he's doing setup work for the throughout the whole movie to get to the last scene with Graysmith and Toski at the diner, kind of putting all of their information together and saying, you know, Arthur Lee. It was probably Arthur Lee. It, Probably Arthur Lee Allen because of these incontrovertible facts and then them walking away from it saying, there's nothing we could do about that. I can't prove any of this. Like, it sounds really good and makes a lot of sense. I can't prove any of this. Okay. Zodiac had to have known Darlene Farron, right? Yes, because of the phone calls on the night of her murder. Because of the Vallejo
1: file. We know that Darlene knew a man named Lee? Yes. So all coincidence aside, Robert, how can you be sure that Lee Allen is a Lee from this file? Now, Vallejo is a small
0: town, but it's not that small. How do you put the two of them together? This is a case that's covered both northern and southern California with victims and suspects spread over hundreds of miles. Would you agree? Yes. Darlene Farron worked at the Vallejo House of Pancakes on the corner of Tennessee and Carroll. Arthur Lee Allen? Lived in his mother's basement on Fresno Street. Door to door that is less than 50 yards. Is that true? i have walked. I never know how to take the final Graysmith scene because he he says that thing to Chloe Savigny, where she asks him why he's doing what he's doing and he says that he needs to... Look into his eyes, and know that it's and know that it's him, and so Graysmith walks into a hardware store. Some years later, after you know, um, after that final scene with Toski, another
1: scene that takes place in the day now,
0: right? Which I think is it's smart, you know, just in very bright light. And they're using, you know, it's. I'm not a Gyllenhaal. I'm not a Hall guy. I don't think everything he does is 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 very good. You're wrong. I think his. <laughs> Are you are you saying well, I'm a John Hall guy, okay. yeah, I'm just kidding. I think his youthful I think his youth betray I think they I think they miscast him sometimes based on his his youth. He's looked the same way roughly um for like twenty years. Um, yeah. Um but this is one of the movies where I think he it works really well because there's a kind of misplaced passion. There's um a kind of sense of having Made a lot of youthful mistakes in the past and ending up in a place where he doesn't necessarily want to be and the zodiac acts, the zodiac investigation kind of acts as an escape for him a little bit um, but it also works really well when the wheels come off of his existence, and um, there's a genuine sadness to him like he's never he's never going to get out of here. Like he's just going to be stuck in this Zodiac thing forever Um, until that last scene. And the sadness on his face is when he looks at him is mixed with a kind of knowing satisfaction. He's sad that he's never going to, this guy's never going to see jail time. Um, But he knows, he knows it's him. Yeah. And it's why he can walk away from... Um, it's why he can walk away from him. It's why he can, you know, into the movie intimates because right after that scene, it flashes forward to the airport, you know, the final scene in the airport and they show a copy of his paperback book, um, on a bookshelf at the airport. It almost seems like he couldn't write the book until he, until he did that, until he had that knowledge that, Oh, it was this guy. I know it was this guy. I'm putting all this together in the service of letting everybody know, um, that it was that it was this guy um and it's just it's very it's understated but a very satisfying like ending to this to that to this whole experience and that's 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 really what it is it's a movie but it's also an ex- it's it's also something you dive into um you know like you do in all good mystery anythings yeah
1: i think also to sum it up though what what places this Ultimately, on on your list, I'm glad you asked that, Mario. I have a list um, of a hundred movies that we've been doing for yeah. weeks now.
0: No, I um, I I really like a good mystery. You, you like a good mystery, Mario? We talked about Scream a couple weeks ago. I like uh, a good—that's not a mystery. That's yeah, a, it, it, we that's talked about this. Nothing.
1: And then there were none. <laughs> that's the reason I love that movie so much.
0: Um, but I like when there's lots of I like mysteries when there's lots of when there's lots of facts when there when there's you know, um, you spend the whole movie acquiring data, and then at some point the data is put into use. Um, and this is, you know, one of the quintessential kinds of those movies. I have several more of, of like movies on my list. Um, but this movie has a lot, this movie checks off a lot of boxes for me in regards to what I want out of, what I enjoy most out of, out of a mystery. Um, Things like um, characters that keep wild animals in their homes in cages. When when that happens, Mario, I'm that guy's the villain, and I'm all in. I'm like finding that guy out. I mean, that's all. That's they do that really well in True Detective in the first season of True Detective. Um, Are you
1: saying the chemist from last week in Mandy was a was a true villain?
0: Oh, but they freeze them. That was awesome. Ooh, that was awesome. Um, Anonymous phone calls from non characters kind of, you know, giving giving really pertinent information that people are just like, oh, okay, person I don't know, I'll take that information and run with it. Um, you know, any kind of mysterious box that doesn't really exist, but that gets mentioned and then gets pulled away from the audience really fast. So, like, the film canister that that guy left with the projectionist at his house, um you know, that Graysmith goes to his house to try to see, you know, I mean, I love that scene, that whole, we talked about that scene before, but I, one of my favorite moments from that scene is when Graysmith asks if the film canister exists, and, and um, Vaughn says it does, and he just kind of really meekly asks, can I see it? <laughs> yeah. And, he, and he's just like, oh, he came and took it back in 1972, and it's just kind of like, oh, he took it back, the mysterious film canister? We needed that mysterious film canister. Um. What else we I got? apartments, like I mentioned this before, that are filled with boxes of documents. You know a serious mystery has taken place when you see an apartment filled with boxes of documents.
1: So there's just like one stack you're not in. No.
0: I want lots of documents. What are all those documents? Where are they from?
1: How have you read all of them?
0: Well, and not even that. It's like, how did he get them? Because like, the Vallejo County Sheriff's Department wouldn't let him bring anything in to write with.
1: As somebody who's been to Vallejo many times... probably pretty easy to get Flaheo like, County okay, Sheriff's information. I mean,
0: and then, and this is a scene, you know, the scene we just talked about with Toski and Graysmith at the diner talking about how this all fits together. Um, There's several more movies on my list that do this, ex- that do this scene. Um, one that's fairly high up on my list. Um, and I get such a fucking rush of watching people put information together. Um you know, that I almost, I, I watch this movie, every time I watch this movie, I almost watch it just to get to that scene. Even though I already know what happens. Watching them kind of recreate this thing and, and place the villain or the, you know, alleged villain in the context of having committed this crime. Um, I just, I just find it so thrilling. Maybe perhaps way too thrilling. But um, all, of, this movie checks all of those boxes for me. And when the Zodiac isn't killing people, it's just so much fun. And yeah. all the actors are so good. And even the ones that don't have a lot of you know, don't have a lot of stuff to do. Like, you know, I'm not a Dermot Mulroney guy <laughs> per se. How dare you. Um but Dermot Mulroney is so good in this movie. In this, you know, in his tiny tiny role. Um Brian Cox. You know, who's better than Brian Cox as Melvin Belly? Um you know, who's he even talking to whenever he's (laughs) talking to anybody he's just talking to himself um and it's a really small part and he's really just there to convey information but everybody makes the most of the time that they're given on screen um and it's you know and mark ruffalo does genius work and uh you know robert downey jr is is doing genius work and jake gyllenhaal is doing very good very good work um (laughs) Cut him down a bit. Cut him down. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, that's why, it's, that's why it's here. Okay. That's why it's on there. Is that all right, Mario? It passes the test. Oh, thanks. You're allowed to have this on your list. Stamp. Mario just stamped
1: my documents. I still think Accidental Taurus should be removed, but, you know, we'll continue the argument. We've had that discussion already. I know. We're going to keep having it until you remove it from the list. Fucking Lawrence Kasdan. It's ruining Fucking our friendship. Lawrence Kasdan. All right, so um, I think we'll take a break and we'll be right back with my number 90. There are some films that are going to show up on this list that I don't particularly like that much. I find enjoyment in them, but they're not movies where if this was a list of my 100 favorite films, they would be nowhere near it. We talk about a lot of novels that have historical impact. Uh, Upton Sinclair's *The Jungle* led to changes in the meatpacking industry, would eventually, you know, inspire that combined with the Triangle Waistcoat Fire, Francis Perkins to draft what would become the New Deal—not mm-hmm. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, you know, Uncle don't Tom's is this
0: into an anti-FDR.
1: France. We did that last week. That's that's why I did, did that joke. Um, I, I, I... Uncle Tom's Cabin, you know, oh, inspired dear. a lot of people. Films aren't really known to do that. However, my number 90, I think, is one of the few films that that actually does have a significant contribution to history. Mm -hmm. My number 90 is 1927, Fritz Lang-directed Metropolis. Uh, In the year 2000, affluent son Fredor, overcome by the beauty of Maria, uh, descends into the pits of Metropolis, this decadent, uh, art-deco, retro-futuristic city. Um discovering the socioeconomic divide. The workers that power the heart machine live below the city, deep down in the pits. They walk in sad single file proletariat style dredge. Um, clumps. Clumps yeah, of sad clumps men. of clumps of bodies. Yeah. Um and he's he's broken by this. His father uh, Joe Fergus, Joe Frederson. I don't know why I keep on saying Ferguson, because it's a goddamn weird name. Well, Frederson is not like a movie Fred. that
0: we... That combination yeah. of, of letters is not one that we're used but to. Well,
1: his father, Frederson, is uh, basically the ruler of the city. Um, discovers that the workers are going to revolt, have been making these plans to revolt, because they're led by this beauty Maria, mm-hmm. who's trying to find a way to combine the workers and, and the... the elite class to come together um he wants no part of this so he enlists the help of Rotwang, the uh, prototypical mad scientist who's created this machine robot and asks him to make a copy of maria to divide the
0: workers mm-hmm. and
1: you know continue the despair
0: well he wants to, he wants the workers to give him a reason to use violence to use against violence them, against them yeah to suppress them that that typical fight against the the haves versus the have
1: nots and the the constant pushing down of capitalist forces um if this sounds like a pretty stupid fucking concept for a movie that has been done thousands of times before and in much better ways you would you would be. Correct. But in 1927, it hadn't been done thousands of times before. It hadn't been done, but it had been done before uh, much better. As Paul Jensen says in his really terrific cinema of Fritz Lang uh, book from 1969, the basic conceptions of the city and of the themes are intellectual, and so conflict with the childish sentimentality of the plotting, motivation, and feelings. The content of Metropolis fails to live up to the visual treatment, but the film is still a treat to the eye. And I think the first reason that this movie kind of interested me the first time I saw it, you know, I went through a a big period of time where I really love German expressionism. Um, there's going to be a movie. Yeah. We've (laughs) talked about that many times before. There's going to be a film much higher on my list, um, that I think captures that extremely well. Um, but some of like Fritz Lang's prior works, even like, uh, Dr. Mabose, um, is interesting to look at, but this movie is, is, is a visual delight. Um, there's an abundant use of the Shoften process, which is like the camera using two lenses to focus on two separate images, Mm -hmm. and then it's filmed onto a single strip. Um, So you get this really interesting look of these grandiose sets of, uh, you know, like like when the workers descend into the catacombs of the city uh, where they live, you get these models, basically, but the workers are walking in front of them, and the way they did that was, they just filled, you know, the one lens shot the small models the second lens shot the workers mm-hmm. and you know just walking they just put it on top of each other and you get that And for 1927 that's that's remarkable um you know machine maria is like this amalgamation of of 20s abstract sculpture like rudolph belling's sculpture 23 um and oscar uh, schnitzker's uh abstract figure so you get a lot of this like work being done we talked you know briefly. Kind of like this workmanship in David Fincher, and like this Fritz Lang was definitely a worksman. He was uh, raised by his father to be an architect. He studied architecture, mm-hmm. um, and you see a ton of that
0: here. Well, I mean, it's uh, the primary achievement of this is one of of, of craft. Yeah, and, no, a hundred percent visual,
1: visual craft. Um, you know, he he fought with the Austrian army during world war one Fritz Lang, and it was injured and so he spent all that time studying art history and architecture and all of that's put into this movie a lot of this is inspired by his trip to new york city where he saw like the grandiose walls the Art he just realized that like he saw it in the darkness is just like this imposing figure and like this this kind of like monster he said you know mm-hmm. um and also like eric Mendelssohn's architecture of the time this really famous art deco uh artist you know where designed the Einstein Tower and the Peter Ross department store in Warcrop, Poland. A lot of that imagery is, like, brought in here. So you get a lot of of the time art deco styles, and it just feels like this nice little snapshot of history while Uh also portraying, like, this this potential future. You know, I think one of the most fantastic shots, interesting in the way of when you see some of these movies about the future, you know, uh, and being now past, you know, eighteen years past when this movie is made, that that shot where he talks on the video uh, monitor yeah, is yeah. is amazing because then you're like, oh, that is something that you know we're ha- we, we past now. Yeah, but like it was visionary at the time to even think of like a television screen. Um. But ultimately, like I said, it's 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 it is a failure as a story, and I don't know. I, I do want to talk a bit about before I move on to the real reasons on my list um something like your feelings and kind of like the story itself and and maybe the visual style
0: well the I mean the story is the idea the general idea of the story I feel is worthy um I it just carried out um with a weird sentimentality yeah that is that is not justified by the story I mean you're really talking about um a kind of class warfare. So when Maria's talking about, you know, trying to bring these two sides together, she's like, well, nobody else is thinking about bringing these two. It can't be as easy as just shaking hands and then moving on with their life. When she says like the mediator or the, the hand is the mediator between the, the head heart, and the heart. heart is the mediator between the hand and the, the head. Yeah. And that just turns out to be Freder making his father and, the um the foreman the foreman of the workers sh- <laughs> shake hands that's ridiculous yeah. um and that's the thing so there's I mean I think my sense of disappointment with this movie is that there's a there's a large worthy theme that's being overshadowed by the the visual imagery and because of that the visuals and the narrative don't match up and yeah the the, the visuals aren't justified by the narrative and the visuals don't. The narrative isn't justified by the visuals, but the visuals also don't justify the narrative. It's it's weird. It's a it, it's actually a really weird um, viewing experience. In no, it is. It is
1: because because even even now, some of the some of the visuals are, are striking.
0: Um, well, the I mean, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be very honest with you. The only scene that I thought was really interesting visually, for me. I mean, I I understand the context of everything that I'm looking at, and I understand why what I'm looking at is interesting. Um, But the the Moloch scene, where, you know, Fredder first goes down into the depths, and he sees them working on the heart machine, um, and...
1: All the workers are working.
0: The pressure rises, and then, you know, all this steam comes out, and it's kind of chaos for a little bit, and he... Perceives um, the heart machine as this monster that's literally eating the workers, and you get that like handwritten title card that just says "Moloch." I think it's Moloch, right? Yeah, it's Moloch. And it's you know all over the screen, and it's just it's all jagged, and it's got some exclamation points and stuff, and it's. um,
1: He does interesting title intertitles often in this movie.
0: Um, and. I found that scene really fascinating. That's not true. The other scene I found really fascinating was um, when the statue of the monk comes to life and is playing the flute um, when Fredder is having another one of his, like, hallucinations. Mm -hmm. Um, I found those scenes really interesting because they were rooted in um, establishing the nature of his character. Is that his, his grasp of existence is so tenuous that he actually has no idea what he's even looking at anymore we, and was, it, it affects him so deeply that it's just it's almost like it's broken his head
1: well that's like one of the best things about german expressionalism for me is is the the creation that is scene that you know they use the set and they use the framing device and what you're looking at to create the emotional affect of the characters uh, i think the great thing about that bullock scene for me is the workers moving like cogs they, mm. so and it's really punctuated where you know they, they have the tower of Babel sequence later talking about the slaves building yeah I mean, the tower yeah. um but when you know moloch's being fed the machine it's still a machine you know you have the slaves fighting it you have the slaves still looking like humans because they're wearing racks um and they're, and they're fighting this being thrown into it and then behind them walking a perfect line of the workers. And, yeah. and, you know, like, it's thematically on the nose, but it's visually interesting. Well, then there's a
0: callback to those scenes refer to each other, the Tower of Babel scene, and the Moloch scene, in the sense that the end of the Tower of Babel sequence shows all of these workers, um, you know, that are building the Tower of Babel running up some steps to a kind of, um, cloudy, I guess, it's hard to tell because of the black and white, um, and also you know, the fact that using a scar- like uh, uh, really scarred footage, just a, just an open um, an openness. Um, but in that case, they're not being swallowed up by. They're not at that point. They're not being swallowed up by a larger creature, which kind of demonstrates that there is a path away from this kind of self annihilation. that yeah. they seem to be. They seem to be kind of imposing on themselves. Where yes, um. Frederson is, is is in charge of it, but they're also going along with it, which is one of the things that I think that the Maria character is trying to inspire in them is that that's why she's not preaching uprising because she actually seems to understand that each segment of this society actually requires one another in a way and our people yeah, exactly because like but,
1: without without the workers, <clears throat> you know you get the flooding like we see in the end on. Um, but then without the brain, it kind of says um, the workers fall into to riotous chaos.
0: But not even that, that without the brain, the workers fall into riotous chaos. It's even without the work, the workers fall into yeah. riotous chaos. Like, and that's why I think a lot of people, which you are 100% going to talk about whenever you want to talk about it. Um, the idea that there's a lot of kind of alternative democracy alternatives found of a voice in this movie the work the work is justified and the work is good it's just how the work is perceived by those who benefit from the work and I think the interesting thing about the voice of this
1: movie um in contrast to some of the the previous films that will show up also on my list that Tawny talk about this force of labor versus force of of power um is the fact that it doesn't vilify Frederson so much he's he's an antagonist for sure Mm. Um, you know, Rotwing kind of like eventually transitions really roughly in, into the antagonist. And that entire sequence, I think, is is poor. Um, which, which, which? Well, one? just just the entire subplot with Hell, the uh, heel, the uh, the wife. Oh yeah, he's, what it's, is it's, that it's, even about? It's just there to give Rotwing motivation to be evil and to work against
0: Frederson. That's all it's there for. Okay. Um, which Frederson doesn't even care about because yeah. he's like, oh, you made a model of my wife. Could you please put this other lady's face on her? Yeah, no, exactly. Um, <laughs> but
1: it's interesting the fact that like they're both sides are both seen to have value. You know, this isn't a movie that's that is saying either side is is one hundred percent wrong or either side is one hundred percent right. It's, it's just there needs to be an understanding that both sides are human. And I do like one sequence you didn't you didn't mention that I really love, and actually might be even more. Uh, then the Moloch scene is is that clock machine scene um, when he says, "Oh, I want to do your, I want to live your life." Yeah, oh, I, see, I, like I the, the actual the actual story of that scene is is dull, stupid because was presented, and I think this is this is definitely a mistake. Is you know he's he's over the top. Um, Alfred Abel, who plays Frederson, is is very reserved. Is a really great performance. Maria, um, is also doing two doing. Both I think she's fantastic. Fantastic, yeah. just doing a great job doing the two different characters. Yeah. Even though she's. She's doing that vaudeville kind of overacting. It's of the time, um, but the thing I found interesting about that th- thematically is is you know working a clock machine and then using that as an overlay to show that he's only worked so many hours. You know, yeah. like, even though that's that ten hour shift, and that's a good way of kind of like I guess bringing it into
0: focus. And I think the one thing I it's mean, an interesting choice. If a lot I, of this movie is a lot of interesting yeah. choices, especially of the time. If I push back against that scene narratively, it's just the sense that he just. Um, that was the first time he was down there, and he was just kind of like, "Oh, you guy doing this thing? I want to do that thing for you. You go live my life. Well, here's my you know. Here's go see this guy. Um, it's just it, You know, the interesting
1: thing is though to me too, and like the the way that that works is the fact that Frederick can't handle it in much the same way." that the worker can't handle, like, the kind of, like, decadence of his Right, life.
0: it's interesting. I mean, and I think the
1: other really Which is kind of, like, promoting kind of, like, a class system in a way, but I don't think that's the intention.
0: I think the intent was yes. more saying... Well, it's almost like it's not even a class system. It's like a caste system. Yeah, in the sense no. that this guy is designed to do this work, and this guy is designed to do this.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's, D- there's like meant divinely. to be... There's meant to be, like... A, a, a strange equality in that, like they're like each person's meant to do. Like definitely saying each person is meant to is born to a function, but no one function should be higher than the other. Is I think what's trying to argue, but it does. It's an incorrect
0: thing to say. Well, no, it's also we, really not well. Is it said. saying that one shouldn't be more valued than the other, or is it just an expression of, um, how? one shouldn't be ignorant of the other. Like one Maybe, should yeah. be a. there should be at least an awareness of what's going on, what the result of the ten hour work day or the ten hour day um is. And and and, 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 and the understanding. of also from the metropolis what? standpoint, like how you get your power and how you get Oh, apparently... Oh, they're, they're, the, golf, the, the, the ghost first, like, wolf is the, wreaking the, havoc.
1: The Weimar Republic cinema police <laughs> is after us. Um, but no, I would say, like, and also on the counterpoint of the Metropolis, saying, like, your obsession with decadence could be your downfall. That really on the nose horror of Babylon sequence of Machine Maria, where she's, you know, being carried up by the seven-headed monster oh, represent that seven deadly awesome. sins. And it's a cool-looking scene. Well, we, I want so to talk about that. And everyone's just so motivated it. by, like, their decadence because they have no responsibility, no true work to do anymore. Like realizing the fact of their interaction with, with the working class would show them like they need to be in touch with, mm. with life. Yeah. Um, what do you want to say about that scene? Cause I do want to move on to my
0: next points on this. Okay, go ahead.
1: No, no, I want to hear it. I want to hear it. I want to hear this. Well, is that the scene, scene with
0: the robot Maria is dancing? Yes. Okay. Um, that scene is fantastic and I'm not 100% sure what it's supposed to be conveying other than, like, a blind lust for their own lust, I th- almost. To me... Were, they almost seem to be responding to the men in the audience, you know, the huffing and, like, the... The leaning in, oh, like, that I mean, wolf.
1: They're, they're very much like a big, bad wolf, sort of. And
0: the dancing is... Her, her dancing is so odd, Um and it could be... Uh, you know, I think it's uh, of the time. That's what I'm saying. saying. But, like, f- from 2018, it's really... um it's really jarring and, and, and interesting to watch and their it's response. Still, but it's very
1: hippie and she looks very naked.
0: So. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, but their response to it I thought was also really powerful too. In the sense that it almost doesn't seem like they're getting off on her as much as they're getting off on their desire for her. Um, it's, it's almost kind of like a um you know, their their collective desire for her has is almost like feeding itself
1: yeah and it's interesting to me in the sense of you know going back to that point you're saying is when responsibility is removed, when your ability to connect with the dirt as it were the mm. the, the things that made you the the calluses on your hand when all when your mind is freed of that, it becomes bored. It comes filled with that sort of a new and looks for decadence somewhere else, looks for life somewhere else. And it sees this like, and like, and this movie's like just way too chock full of religious allegory. And it sees it oh, in, yeah? in lust. Like, oh yeah. Like, only slightly. Yeah, uh, just a little bit. You know, and, and lust is the closest thing to being human that they have left. Mm. And then when they grab her, like they're, they're like carrying her around. You know, and you, you get that kind of, like, divide between the workers who think their children are drowned, so they're, they're looking to kill her, um, and, and the people, the, like, these men look like they just, they want to carry her around, talk to her, but they seal, seem like they want to eventually rip her apart, you know, and and that's kind of carried through, because she's just the embodiment of physical decadence, that physical desire, mm-hmm. and the fact that when she's Tied to the stakes. She's still laughing mm. and happy about what's happening. Yeah, It's interesting. I guess I think I think I think the visual style does betray the story, in the sense that the story itself. I don't think Thea von our um, name right now, uh, Brigitte Helm. Uh, Thea von. The visual style does portray the story, and I don't think Thea von Harbor or the. the uh, the screenwriter, Fritz Lang's wife, you know, had as solid a conceit as Fritz Lang did. Mm-hmm. And that Fritz Lang was able to kind of add some complex motifs um, visually that weren't there in the story originally. And I think there's things to pull from the visuals that are not in the story. I don't think it's still a good movie. I think it's still a very simple movie. It's something that Fritz well, I mean, Lang himself I, kind of turned his back on later in life. I'm kind of looking life. forward
0: to hearing more about this because it seems like from my own reading of it and from watching it you know I obviously didn't connect with it I think there are some interesting um and powerful scenes um and stuff you're not going to get in in 2018 they're doing things in 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 1927 that they're not going to do 2018 per se um it does seem like one of these movies in power apps that's one of the reasons I don't connect with it is because I generally don't connect with um the con it's it's historical context doesn't generally mean as much to me as it seems to mean to roger ebert and pauline kale and you well no and i
1: would lead that into my second point and and, you know this is the second point leading into like the main reason this shows up as my 90th most pivotal film is the history of this film in general Mm -hmm. in the sense that you're talking about that great movies review from 2000 that that great movies 2003 you said um Pauline Kael probably writes that review in the '70s or '80s, mm. and they're dealing with a hunt with an hour and forty-three minute version. The complete version of this movie is seven years old. You know, the 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 vision presented by Fritz Lang that was originally put in the German cinemas in 1927 mm-hmm. was two hours and the thirty some minutes. We're still missing five percent of that film, right? And. So the history of the film is a reason why I find this so interesting. I, I, I have always liked lost cinema and the history behind lost cinema. Mysterious film canisters, Mario? Yeah, yeah exactly. Huh? Did, did, did somebody find this in 1970? That's what he found in 1972. was one of the like three reels of this. Um, so, you know, it's, it's originally, you know, this movie, we'll, we'll talk about this in a second, one of the most expensive productions in history, even still today. If you consider modern day dollars, um, it's two and a half hours long. You know, it's, it's, it is a chore to sit through, even today. um, I like my silent movies to be at most two hours. Oh, that's, Um, then that's a long fucking silent movie. It's still a long long silent movie. movie. Uh, So originally, this movie comes out. It's two and a half hours long. It, It critically does not do well. We'll talk about that soon, too. Um, when it gets sent to England and eventually to America, playwright Channing Pollock gets it, and cuts out half of the movie. So, multiple things about what are happening are missed. They cut out the hell subplot, mm-hmm. the, the the wife, which I think is fine, but they cut it out simply because her name is close to hell. That seems about right. <laughs> um, uh, they they cut out what happens to uh, the secretary after he's fired. They cut off, the Yeah, they cut out all <sighs> of that. Um, and so the reviews you're looking at from, from Pauline Kael and, and Roger Ebert's great movies are still looking at this incomplete version. You know, you are looking not at the vision that Fritz Lang created. And it's, it's always interesting to me to, to watch the critical analysis of film from the intention and even not even the intention, but the, the actually released final print version, mm-hmm. you know, versus what they're seeing.
0: Well, Roger Ebert is really is speaking directly to the the point you're trying to make in the sense that it's he's dealing with it 100% contextually. I mean, his supposition is that Metropolis inspired a whole almost every major science fiction movie that came after it. I mean, and he in his review he talks about uh, Dark City, Blade Runner, The Fifth Element, Alphaville, Escape from L.A., Gattaca, well, Batman's at, Gotham City, the Rotwangs um, um, he's Laboratory. The pro, he's
1: is, the prototypical mad
0: scientist. Sure. inspires like, Frankenstein. You know, Bride of Frankenstein, he talks about... Um, well, the cinematographer the repli- on
1: this ends up moving to America has you know, Nazi yeah. Germany takes over, and then... You know, he, he becomes the director of photography on Dracula and, mm-hmm. and a lot of those universal horror movies. Well,
0: he, and Roger Ebert even, like, he ends that paragraph talking about the idea that Rotwang's weird artificial hand, which is just brown, um, is um, directly referenced in Dr. Strangelove. Um, it is, yes. And that's, that, but that's, and that's one of the things about this movie is that for all of its narrative its, it's narrative weirdness and failings. Quotation marks. Right. Narrative. Um, it's it's aesthetics have imprinted themselves on film forever
1: i think look at specifically ridley scott um and i want i just want to mention alien and blade runner to like together because it's actually the same prop uh used um when they're landing on the planet in alien where they they initially get the egg And um, then that opening sequence in Blade Runner is going into the LAPD. Mm -hmm. That tower is so tangentially related to the Tower of Babel in the center of Metropolis. The the aesthetic is completely the same. Um, But I think more so than that, more so than than the influence it has on films that follow. Because I think it it, it does definitely make a lot of steps forward in, in, in science fiction. Just the history of people trying to recover the original film. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah. Um so Hitler you know adored this film. We'll talk about it in a minute. And and he had it as like one of his personal bunkers where he had a lot of the film canisters, USSR is movies banned. Um, they come after the fall of Berlin. They take it, you know, they bring it to their own film consortium. Um, around the nineteen seventies, uh nineteen eighties, uh there's there a discussion between what the German cut is and what they have at the USSR and there's just been this like there's this long 30-year process to get this movie from the around, like, hour and 30-minute production they have. The one that, like, Giorgio Mordor, Mordir, uses in his 1984 release. That really weird, colorized version with Freddie Mercury and Pat Benatar. Yeah, I thought that awful. was a good idea. Just don't watch that. I had watched four different versions of this movie this past week. That one made me want to take off a nail from my body.
0: Like, several times.
1: It is... A miserable experience um, but you know to have post-world war ii germany in like 20 years removed from world war ii communicating with the iron curtain of the ussr just to get this film preserved mm. you know just just to find and they, they pieced together this version using footage from you know canisters found in england and the original novel that they found and and australia and 2001 they released this, this two hour long version And then, some, you know, 10 years later, in this back office of this museum in Argentina, they find basically the complete film. Mm. You know, and then finally they're able to create what is probably going to be the closest variation of this movie. But just to have so many of these film historians, to have so many people who love cinema take this movie that has hallmarks and has motifs and has visions. That, that influence film, but that we've had, you know, we, we've held, at, but to need the additional pieces that don't influence modern cinema, because the filmmakers, like Ridley Scott, you know, didn't see that version of the film. <laughs> but to, to want to to make the work to create the original vision, just these people who have dedicated their life to film to create it is just so fascinating to me.
0: Yeah, but and it, that speaks to I think the power of the images that we did have, yeah, and that they're the looking idea for that, something else. Like that there's had more, there'd more, and well, they had had that
1: justify just, their. Maybe they had that justify their love for it, or maybe they're looking for something else that struck them visually. I, mean,
0: I think one of the recovered one of the recovered scenes is like an extra thin man scene, and the thin man is such a weird, a weird guy, like a weird looking guy. Yeah, um, you know when he's in jo- um, Josephat's apartment. Um, and he's so weird, and his movements are so weird, and I'm actually... It was one of the scenes that I did. It's like one of the B scenes. I was like, that seems kind of cool. Um, yeah, they're like, you don't know if he's going to murder him. Right, and he's just... He's got this weird smile, and his almost looks like he has... His offering, lips are like, kind of painted yeah. onto his face, and it's just... And the way he like pulls out the checks and offers... It's like just weird. Yeah. Um, but but cool, and it's it's one of those things where you're almost you're almost kind of glad to have it because the alternative in the print before that is just a title card saying what, what happened there.
1: And it gives you a lot of like the, the sense of what Lang will do in a few years with his film Noir. Like, like what he's going to do with M and then what he's later going to do when he moves, you know, it goes, like runs off, becomes an expat. And later what he's going to do when he becomes an expat to America with a lot of his really great early film noirs apparently someone's peeling out to watch m right now <laughs> um but you know that's fascinating to me but i think the thing that makes this my 90s most pivotal film is the true historical influence this movie has okay. on the world in general at is least the world of whistle sound effect Ooh. or no like the like the Nice little drum Fuck that. We're not going to do that. Um, <laughs> as I said, this cost 7 million Reichmarks in 1927. $244.3 million in 2018. It's Waterworld money. Um, the shooting lasted... Yeah, it's like two Waterworlds almost, right? Uh, the shooting lasted 18 months. Um, I think it made somewhere in the area of like 48,000 Reichmarks back. So a critical disaster. Um, the studio that produced this is uh, UFA. It was uh, basically a conglomeration in post-World War I or around the end of World War I of creating a national film system that could kind of create the propaganda for Germany mm-hmm. in, in you know, post-war Germany to kind of get you know, everyone's beaten down and broken by, by what's happened. Um, German cinema is known to have fallen far behind the vision of russia and england by this time and so uh, eric lindendorf uh the general of of the first battle of world war one the battle of liege um saw this idea of just a state-controlled film corporation and so they had a starting capital of 25 million reichmark and they started making these productions um they took in a bunch of these various uh you know studios including joe may's uh Film, which was the company that lang was working for he did like the Mabus. Um, he did uh, this really solid movie before, this Destiny, which I think is a much better movie than mm-hmm. um, Metropolis. Uh, and, you know, it's built initially as this propaganda arm in post-World War One, but eventually the business wins out and was says, like, we're going to create materials built for German audiences. We are going to try to, you know, expand the vision of German cinema, because German cinema had fallen behind. And you know, the European film market, England, Russia is crippled by the war. Uh, and the American markets see no profitability in Germany because of the fact that the Reichmarks are worthless outside yep. of the country. Um, and so within UFA, you see this this rise of German expressionism. And, and then the few independent studios outside of it, including one of the movies I'll mention, that Fritz Lang had the opportunity to direct, but he did not. You really see the rise of European expression, uh, German expressionism, because they have to compete against this giant machine. Well, you know, Metropolis costs basically one fourth of the studio's capital. They they throw everything into it, and um, unfortunately around this time the German uh, currency has stabilized, and so American cinema starts coming back in, and it forced. Uh, the UFA to create uh, the Para Famat, uh, which is an agreement between UFA and Paramount and MGM. It was a loan of $4 million. And f- with the condition that the UFA owned a, you know, thousand, about 5,000 cinemas at this time throughout Germany, mm-hmm. that 75% of those screens would show American films only. And that both MGM and Paramount would get 20 films a year each. So, now the UFA only has the ability to show 25% of the movies. So,
0: the majority of Germans are seeing American movies. Exactly.
1: And this is mostly because of, of a Lost Film. I don't know the name of it off my top of my head. And Metropolis. These two movies alone just crush this, this, this major corporation. And they fall into tremendous debt. They fall into bankruptcy. And around uh, a few years later, they sell it to Alfred Hugenberg. Which, uh... Oh. Was my buddy. Which is, uh, he was a he was a major uh, media mogul at the time. Ran a lot of the newspapers, and a good friend of uh, Joseph Goebbels. Um, he would eventually become the minister of agriculture under the National Socialist Party. Um, and so, basically, the thing I see about this movie is is this this Metropolis. You know, this this major production, this vision by Fritz Lang, who who saw this, who created this movie. Uh, and I don't know where Thea von Harbou was coming from. You know, there's, there's some arguments that maybe her original script uh, propelled, like the the one voice would be the one sort of leader that like Hitler would represent. Uh, but but Fritz Lang's vision to me kind of represents this cooperation of two forces. You know, these two units coming together, and the heart represents the society of uh, this, this this world of discussion they could have, the the appreciation uh-huh. of both sides, um, the fact that his movie that's trying to do this. Almost completely leads to the collapse of the biggest film studio in the country into the hands of the National Socialist Party, which completely goes against the vision of, of this film.
0: Yeah, that's interesting.
1: Um, you know, and, and there's there's this famous discussion, uh, you know, Lang, a few years after Metropolis uh, around 1933 makes the testament of Dr. Mabuse. Um, you know, a sequel to, to his four-and-a-half-hour-long, because Fritz Lang did not know how to shut up with his movies, uh, Dr. Mabuse, and um, there's a scene actually highly critical of, of Hitler. Like, Hitler's rising, his time, uh-huh. and um, Goebbels calls him in to the ministry, and he's expecting that he's going to get yelled at, and um, Goebbels says uh, to him, The Fuhrer and I have seen your films, and the Fuhrer made it clear that this is the man will give us the National Socialist film. And they they look at Fritz Lang to be the voice of something that he's so completely against. You know, mm-hmm. all of his films before then, all the films he'd eventually make as he expats out to America, you know, speak highly against this. But they see him as the division. And he, you know, so he runs off. Um, he's like, go fuck yourself, basically. You know, and this leads to the UFA producing the movies for national socialist party their major production during this time ends up being the triumph of the will which is <laughs> which, you know is very very similar to the ideas of metropolis sure it's just the heart in that movie so happens to be a small dashed man who would eventually shoot himself in the head because he was a coward um and as Goebbels said during the nuremberg party convention in 1934 power based on guns may be a good thing it is, however, better and more satisfying to win the heart of the people and keep it. And it's it's always interesting. Well, that's and the reason this is like my pivotal film. And i like I have a quick discussion about this afterwards. Is is, um, I was watching a documentary on this, The Journey to Metropolis, from 2010, right after they found like the lost footage. And and there's a story of a man. Um, there's a story of this man, like re- relegated after he ex- after he, the war ended. Uh he entered the Mannhausen Gusten uh I'm mispronouncing so many words. Uh concentration camp in Austria and seeing like the shaved heads and the work clothes turned to a film in May and said, Do you know Metropolis? Mm. And the fact that Metropolis almost became a catalyst to these ideas that it fundamentally I don't think represented. Yeah. But led to enabling um, in addition to many historical instances that, that enabled it. Uh, empowered a system that that stood against its values is just so fundamentally interesting to me. And that's why I think it's a pivotal film. It's one of those few pivotal films on my list so far that I've shown up. That's not just a pivotal film for me. That I think is is a pivotal film in the moment of history.
0: Well, pretty much. Um, yeah, everyone would ag- would ag- would agree with you on that. I mean, Metropolis is where it is. I think primarily because of its of its history. Yeah, and in the way that it's you know dictated. Um, Science fiction filmmaking, but also the the course of one of the most traumatic periods of of the, the world most traumatic period of modern history. Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: mostly because like this movie itself is not that good. Like it really is a chore to sit through. Oh, it's, there's a lot of great visuals in it. Um, the message at its heart is so juvenile, but it. There's there's intentions in good places, but ultimately it is a failing.
0: Well, I think it's you know to kind of direct it back to what you were just talking about. It when you watch the movie, it seems very confused. Mm. It doesn't know what it wants to do. It doesn't really seem one hundred percent sure exactly what it ultimately wants to say. I mean, it has its title cards tell you what it wants to say, um, but the movie itself doesn't really seem to be to be conveying. That message per se. It's only conveying that message when it conveys that message. It would be really easy for a group of people like the Nazis to co-opt some of this messaging and twist it a little bit and say, "No, it actually means this." Yeah, and
1: that's what the Triumphal Bill does. Triumphal Bill is sure. just a co-option of those so, so sorts of ideas and saying you need this centralized leader, and that's heart is this man.
0: Right. Um, and I think it also it speaks to. Um, you know, Fritz Lang isn't Nostradamus. He didn't, he couldn't say specifically, this is coming, but it speaks to a universal ideal of where society was, where the world, where the world society was, what its values were, and what it was grappling with. So it's, its prescience seems kind of uncanny, considering what came after it um you know you mentioned earlier the idea of like speaking on on the video on television phone, yeah. a video phone, but even the idea of how the um some of the world politics that would arise literally right after this movie um there was rumblings aligned itself like this movie aligned itself directly to like aspects of all of those, to all of those things, um, which makes the movie both frustrating as we've conveyed and fascinating as we've conveyed that it missed the boat on so many things and hit the, hit the nail on the fucking head on so many others. That's it's so, that's kind so
1: poorly tells its message that, you know, Lang was trying to convey and Lang would later convey that it was able to be co-opted by something that's so, utterly stood in the face of that message
0: but that's kind of how a lot of we're not gonna have a world war ii conversation we're not gonna you know but that's kind of we're actually changing this this is is, uh subtly
1: my contumor changes into a ww2 um podcast
0: and that's a lot of how uh, that's how a lot of those movements get started i mean stalin era communism doesn't look anything like marxist era communism looks a little bit like Lenin era communism and he twists it to kind of he twists the the messaging of communism to justify his ultimate goals. Yeah. Um and you know you can see a direct you can see almost a live action version of that between Metropolis and Triumph of the Will where you know Hitler and Goebbels took as like some of the more fluid I'm going to say fluid aspects of the politics of Metropolis and said if we just do this we can make the movie and its message mean this, this. Yeah. Um, and yes that is that is fascinating that is kind of utterly fascinating it's you know and we were talking off talking off camera off air about no yeah. off camera okay Um, <laughs> about you know, we mentioned you mentioned To Kill a Mockingbird when you were talking about, you know, the jungle and stuff. We were just kind of going through novels that kind of changed things. Well, it's interesting to take... Uh, to look at To Kill a Mockingbird through the context of that stupid book, Go Set a Watchman, that came out in 2015 or whatever, um, where Atticus Finch is like a huge... It ra- <laughs> was a huge racist. Yeah, um, And it's... But in reality, that was an earlier draft of... It was an earlier draft of... Um, to kill a mockingbird it's just it's the way that you can twist the politics of something to um convey a very specific message about or uh, the way you can twist it's the way you can twist the politics of something to um convey a worldview that most Accurately describes how you feel about the yeah. world at any given at any given moment,
1: and I think this works as a double feature with Triumph of the Will, just to see like two different sides oh, of an argument.
0: God, that's, that's a. Te- <laughs> I mean, that's it's terrible it's movie. terrible,
1: but it's it's in the sense like Triumph of the Will would not ever show up on the list. Honestly, it's also really poorly done, um, but the fact that there are saying presenting the same
0: well, core problem. Did you say, problem, you, say but, you took a class? Ones where they showed Triumph of the Will and... What Several else? others, yeah. There but was, not it was Metropolis? Like, prop- no, not Metropolis. But it was
1: all on propaganda film. But
0: yeah. that, would have been an, that would have been an interesting class of showing the movement of movies like this. How you get from Metropolis to Triumph of the Will.
1: Should we, should we talk to Quinnipiac University and
0: create this? Oh, let's fucking do it. <laughs> we'll pass out counterweight beers to everyone in the class and we'll watch some propaganda films and see how you know, yeah. see what we come up with. Um, But that's, I mean, it's an interesting class to start with Metropolis and go, you know, through the the historical context of how the message of Metropolis got manipulated by the failure of Metropolis um, and then resulted in the triumph of the will, which then resulted in the glorification of the Nazi ideals. Um, I understand why this movie from that context is, is fascinating
1: no i would agree in the fact that there's some movies that are going to show up on this list and this is one of them where the importance of the film rests so much in the history of it and in the influence of it and not so much in it in my life but in what i feel would be events that did shape the world i grew up in
0: well i'm gonna so i'm gonna add on to that and also i'm gonna reduce that a little bit um if you don't mind, in the sense that when you're looking at movies, when you're looking at any art, um, when you're looking at any as- any kind of thing that becomes an aspect of yourself, it's generally, sometimes it's just the thing, but then a lot of times it's the thing that attaches, it's the other stuff that attaches to the thing. Yeah, And that's the stuff um, that... You don't. You no longer just carry around like a a one viewing of a movie. You know what I mean? Like, oh, that time I saw it and it really affected me, and blah blah blah. Um, It's all this other stuff. It's what, and we've talked about this a couple weeks ago. It's the it's the knowledge that the viewing of the movie opens up for you, Um, and how that stuff connects to larger ideals. You know, someone might be having. I I mean, it's it's. It's an interesting. It's an interesting movie. I think it's ninety number means less than. Yeah, like the movie per se. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I feel like I didn't say it right, but I also feel like I did say it perfectly.
1: Fair enough. He he just mic dropped. Well, um, so yeah, so that's that's really the core reason why it shows up as my number ninety, um. We promise I will get back to movies that have a more important aspect of my own personal life soon, maybe not for a couple weeks but, but this
0: has an important aspect to your personal life. It doesn't have like a direct relationship like it doesn't it's not scream no you know what I mean, but all this you didn't just do all this research today. you know what I mean? This is stuff you had read about you know through the years and have put together. And thought about and you know reasoned out. You didn't. This movie is like endless. It's an endless fucking movie. You don't watch four versions of this movie in a week just to prove a point. You know what I mean? Like the I do sometimes, but <laughs> not this case. Not this time. Um, the movie, whether or not it has a direct autobiographical component, in a way does have a direct autobiographical component. You know what I mean? Because yes. it opened up your thinking about. These ideas. Um and it might not all of these ideas might not lead to the movie some kind itself of personal speak catharsis, to
1: me, but but it's the influence of the movie and the catalysts of, of what the movie presented as well as the fallout of the movie do. And like that has yeah. a really personal relationship with me in the sense of of it's always interesting to see these, these moments in time which Maybe just be are just entertainment, or just just pieces of art that that maybe have been done as an afterthought. Like this, obviously, was an afterthought. This was a, a culmination, but that don't feel like they're going to have a, such a profound effect, and certainly not a profound effect. They do, you know, make it make a one eighty <laughs> in a separate direction of its attention is eminently fascinating to
0: mm. me. Sure, you know, of course.
1: These these moments of um, I hate to, hate to use you know the cliches, but the, you know the best laid plans lead to. Fuck all. And that's why this movie's my number ninety.
0: All right. Um, thank you for listening. Go check us out on Instagram and at Twitter. Instagram.com
1: slash pivotal film. Check us out Twitter where I update regularly and Tom never looks at 'cause I haven't seen it since you opened Twitter, it. Twitter Twitter is intense, man. Twitter Twitter freaks me out sometimes. <laughs> like it's it's a lot. There was ugh, I responded to a thing about Terrifier on Twitter. It led to, to conversation. I was like, oh, I don't want to get down this road. If you had a
0: conversation, it's bad.
1: Yeah. Um, but yeah, follow us on Twitter. Have a conversation with us at uh, twitter.com slash filmpivotal. Because on Twitter world, everything's backwards. Yep.
0: It's the bizarre world. Yeah. Um, you can also talk to us at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Have we got any emails yet?
1: Nope. We got a couple requests through our Twitter. Which yeah, is, that's, I think that's how it's. I think that's how it's done now. Which we might, we might do. You know, we might actually. You know, we got the, actually. I think you know we'll look at these movies for sure. I, if you send your request in, we're going to definitely give a, give them a look because the two movies we got requested, um, I don't, I haven't seen. I don't know if I mentioned BFF Air. Um, I don't know if you've seen. You're looking at me like you have seen. I've seen one ones. of them. No, oh, I didn't see that. I didn't see that one. Really? No. Oh, weird. I'm not a big fan of that director.
0: Yeah. It's
1: it's it's Coppola's, uh The Conversation. Yeah.
0: I feel like we <laughs> so. just justified that person's existence, yeah. whoever that is. Um, <laughs> um, do do all those things, and then subscribe to us on whatever podcast platform you subscribe to podcasts at. Drop
1: us a review. Uh, say like, hey, these guys talked about the Weimar Republic for a while, and Lynn ramsey films. Who knows, one day we might talk
0: about Michael Haneke. We always do. We always do it.
1: Maybe. Maybe there will be an episode, special episode about Michael You know what? Actually drop us, you know what would be good? A recommendation about, uh, we, we we like that Lynn Ramsey Tell us director how to get in touch with Michael spotlight. Haneke. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but no, we did, We enjoyed that director spotlight. So, like, maybe if we get suggestions about a new director spotlight, that could be a special episode. Make them good make suggestions, them good. please. If, if they're, like, oh, it's going to be fucking Lawrence Kasdan. <sighs> ah,
0: son we'll do it.
1: Bitch. We'll do it.
0: I don't know. You won't
1: like it, guys, but we'll fucking do it. But yeah, so you know, Pivotal Film Podcast at gmail.com our Twitter our Instagram. Tom, you wanna to lead us straight home? Straight home? You I'm I'm here, by the way. Take I'm any here.
0: diversions. Um, yeah, that's it for this week. Um, go see a movie, drink a beer, and we will talk to you.